You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. Today I'm talking to director Aaron Katz about his new film, Gemini. It's the latest in a string of independent works, including Cold Weather and Land Ho, and he's uniquely qualified to talk about the state of independent cinema, so we get into that and a whole lot more. Coming to you this week from my garage. That's right, my garage. We keep it chill here sometimes. So, sit tight. This is Playback. I do love speed. Um, it's funny. I'm so used to seeing speed. We have an X rental copy and a clamshell. Uh, and so you, my <laughs> awesome. copy of speed like sticks out farther. Cause it's, um, as it should, cause it's a, uh, larger case. And, uh, I always love, I love getting rental copies because you get more trailers on the rentals. Oh yeah, I guess so. Um, like often, like the sell through stuff would just go to the movie usually. Yeah. Like, uh, so I feel like on rental copies, some, especially like Miramax and dimension films from mm-hmm. the nineties have so many oh, trailers. Definitely. I remember I watched, I watched swingers the other day and that's got like all the dimension slate. Yeah. All the trailers. It's fun because half the movies are things that are like fun things you've heard of. And half is like, what the hell is this? <laughs> some of it makes me want to go find it. It's like, oh, I'll definitely. Go, I'll go buy that. I think we're set. Shall we dive in? Let's dive in. Okay, everybody. I'm here with Aaron Katz, the writer and director and editor, actually, right? And editor. Of Gemini. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show, Thanks for having me. Yeah. I've invited Aaron into my den of excess, I guess. There's there's a lot to look at in here. episode. as I said, Aaron directed a film called Gemini, which is in theaters right now. You can check it out. Uh, I wanted to make sure we got him in here while it's still in theaters because I love it. And if there is an air of familiarity about this episode, <laughs> that will be because Aaron and I go back. We were in college together. So, yeah, man, thanks for coming on the show. How you doing? Doing pretty good. I mean, come on. Give me more than that. How you well, doing? I'm doing great looking at your VHS collection. <laughs> uh, I was just uh, appreciating your copy of Sliver, which has a special significance to Gemini because uh, just a few days before we started shooting, uh, Lola Kirk, who, who's the, the star of Gemini, and uh, Andrew Reed, our director of photography, who also went to school with us in North Carolina, yeah. we all watched Sliver together. None of us had seen it before, but we thought it would be a good one to watch to just kind of immerse ourselves in the mindset of 80s and 90s Esther House uh, thriller <laughs> world. Totally. You ever read his book? No, I've never read it. I, it's high on the list. Day. Hang on a minute. I'm going to leave this on the show. All right. Just so everyone understands. What do we got? Just hang on. Stay there. Sit tight. I know dead silence works on, on radio <laughs> very well. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Esther House hates Hollywood. Yes, he does. Um, Question is, do you? No, I don't hate Hollywood. I mean, there's a lot to hate in Hollywood. Yeah. A lot of things that are depressing, but there's a lot of wonderful things. I mean, one of the reasons to make this movie is to confront my conflicted feelings about it and um, to sort of live in the tradition of of movies and books that both celebrate and have a lot of trepidation about Hollywood. But I think it's much more in the tradition of something like, do you ever read What Makes Sammy Run by Bud Schroeder? Oh, yeah, sure. Which is very cynical about Hollywood, but mm-hmm. also very uh, 
loving towards it as well. And mm-hmm. I would say that Gemini is less in the tradition of movies like um, The Player or uh, State in Maine, which just mm-hmm. dis- seem to despise Hollywood and the entire purpose is to, to satirize it. Now, I, look at those filmmakers, you know, Mamet and Altman, not exactly Hollywoody types. Not that you are, but uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's interesting, though. I've grown to appreciate more of the artistry of Hollywood filmmaking and and uh, not, not to get in too deep on, on uh, our past, but we were in a screenwriting class together uh-huh. and our tastes differed pretty wildly at Say that least. time. And uh, as time has gone on, I've grown to appreciate more of the things that I think you probably would have liked and appreciated at that time and you know looking back at the things that inspired gemini you know i already mentioned esther house but also you know more broadly 80s and 90s thrillers like curtis hansen stuff i'm talking pre-la mm-hmm. confidential mm-hmm. stuff like the hand that rocks the cradle and bad influence and those films at the time were regarded as I don't, I don't, not exactly b pictures but movies that weren't to be taken seriously as art mm-hmm. and looking back at them i think many of those movies are elegant and like just as good as anything and should be should get perhaps more respect than they do as as um really great artists working totally i think the industry term for those might be an entertainment Mm -hmm. you know just dismissively that's just an entertainment yeah yeah but i think i think that's just the wrong way to think about it and maybe it's hard to see in the moment you know when you know critics are grinding through their weekly slate of stuff. It's hard mm-hmm. to see that, like, Bad Influence, which is, of course, shot by Robert Ellswit, as were many of the Hanson films of that era, is, like, a beautiful, restrained uh, aesthetic exercise and has incredibly fun performances from James Spader and Rob Lowe. And, like, it's hard to do it better. You yeah. can't make that kind of film any better, in my opinion. And uh, I don't know if – I bet it got a lot of two-and-a-half-star reviews at that time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this movie, Gemini, I, I loved it. Uh, it's probably my favorite one you've made so far. Uh, what struck me about it, <clears throat> what I wanted to talk to you about, you kind of just started to get into it a little bit. There's more style, more swagger in this movie than your previous movies. Uh, certainly, it's a movie with the DNA of you, uh, just in terms of you know the interactions between your two actresses and stuff like that. There's a very real world feel to it but there's also just you know just from that opening shot of upside down palm trees which i thought was kind of amazing just an easy simple idea that puts you on edge immediately and kind of puts you in a frame of mind along with this kind of swinging not swinging but like the score from keegan dewitt is like this jazzy uh cool you know vibe and obviously that adds to the atmosphere so what what i wanted to talk to you about was what brought that on i guess i mean what brought the intent to put more style into this movie than maybe you have in other films. I've gotten very interested in making films that have this sort of uh, bigger scope of, of, of visual elegance. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope is, is what we achieve. And it really has to do with the fact that I, as I was alluding to earlier, I've come to appreciate this this style of studio filmmaking, and I really enjoy the structures, the rhythms, the look of some of those movies. Mm-hmm. And so on this one, what I wanted to do was use a lot of that and really celebrate the tradition of that and then populate it with characters who – uh, have a foot in the world of the you know the narrative that's from that structure mm-hmm. and a foot in the world of some of my past movies which allow more space to you know examine who these people are and treat them as people who are um 
you know, real living people alive in the here and now and, and um, not just engines for the narrative. Yeah. You said you guys took a look at Sliver. I mean, do you tend to take a look at another movie? Uh, do you – in terms of establishing like a visual aesthetic, do you look at artwork or anything like that to, to help dictate like specifically on this one what was driving the aesthetic you had in mind inspirationally? I don't know if there was any one movie, but we were pretty immersed in watching uh, – Maybe starting with the early 80s, I, I really think of like Body Heat and American Gigolo was kicking off a, a new era, a new style of thriller. You look at the stuff from the late 70s and it has a really different vibe. Mm-hmm. And I feel like these sort of um, – uh, yeah, I think people would say in some ways more commercial uh, types of thrillers uh, uh, started around that time. But I really – yeah, we were just watching a ton of those movies. Um, Blowout is another one. And, you know, even stuff, you know, through the mid to late 90s, like uh, Wild Things and Poison Ivy, <laughs> I guess that's 92. Uh, Cruel Intentions, like, obviously those are a bit more on the salacious end of the spectrum. Right. But we really, I would say, we're just immersing ourselves in this world. And a lot of those movies have a, have a very... Um, glossy aesthetic mm-hmm. uh um and, and so we wanted to have fun with that um and yeah felt pretty inspired by that and then also i would say a little bit by like early hong kong action cinema and especially uh, a better tomorrow right. uh which you know john woo came to be known for such excess and a better tomorrow definitely is indulgent but it's very restrained and i think it's a just a great film about a city at night and so in some ways we wanted to make our own great film about a city at night and felt inspired to do that maybe more than like you know taking the looking at an aesthetic and trying to recreate it sure that idea though of watching a bunch of movies immersing yourself in that do you do you feel like reticent at all in the midst of that that you might subconsciously even start to lift this or that in, in ways that maybe you didn't want to you know, I ask this question a lot. What what drove – what inspired the look or whatever? Did you look at films? And a lot of times filmmakers are quick to say, oh, I didn't want to watch another movie because I didn't want to – you know, which right. sometimes I think is kind of bullshit. I get what they're saying. Like I, I wasn't out to copy somebody. But I think that being inspired by movies is part of the game, right? So, yeah. But that having been said, that's my question. Do, do you feel any kind of trepidation about that? I don't really. Yeah. I enjoy watching movies. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, And I enjoy sort of immersing myself in a world. And I feel like if you're broad enough about it, uh, like you watch a lot of movies from mm-hmm. a certain genre, then it tends to all just be more general inspiration rather than let's lift this shot. And I think that, you know, it's funny. I think the only time we've ever lifted a shot uh, directly was on Cold Weather, and it's not even a shot from a movie. It's Cold, Cold Weather's movie, you know, two mm-hmm. movies ago. And um, what's that Jason Statham movie where he uh, is like a driver for like a bank heist? Uh, now I don't remember what this movie is called. It's like a very classy Statham picture. Um, the Bank Job? The Bank Job. The Bank Job. The Bank Job. I think that's what it's I called. I think it's The Bank Job. Well, anyway, the poster... I get it confused with the wasn't there like a uh, the Italian job? The I get, Italian I get job. it confused with that. 
Yes, the bank, the bank job. The bank job. Ten so, years ago. So ten years ago, yeah. The bank job has a really great poster, which is just Jason Statham sitting in a car, like, looking over his shoulder. <laughs> no, and it's it so evocative of, like, waiting for the heist to happen. You know, with the title and that picture, it's like, you don't see much beyond, you know, just this guy's face. Um, but it's a really amazing poster. So that's the only oh, time yeah, we've ever... Dude, that's, I've never seen that poster. It's a great I think, poster, I think I've right? only ever seen, like, the DVD poster. You're talking about this, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's got a throwback vibe. That's really cool. Uh, and so... So that's the only thing we've ever lifted directly. There's a shot in cold weather where um, one of the actors, Trieste, is like waiting for someone to come out, and we were like, "Let's let's do the bank job poster," because <laughs> uh, I think that movie was you know just a year or two old at that time, and, right. and people were like, "Yeah, we, let, let's do that." But other than that, uh, uh, and I feel like that's a weird enough one that I don't mind admitting it. Sure, no one's going to be uh, like, yeah, "Bank job." <laughs> I know exactly. Yeah, no one's going to accuse me of stealing anything. But uh, yeah, I, I I I really feel like the other part of it is that. Um, Andrew Reed, our director of photography, and I tend to have these, I wouldn't say conflicting ideas, but strong ideas about what we're going to do that often we get into a place and start talking about it. And it sort of naturally becomes this other idea, this third idea that neither of us had uh, on our own. And so that tends to, if anyone is overly um, thinking of of something that already exists, we tend to evolve that into something else. Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking of Andrew, uh, you guys have been working together the whole time, right? Yeah, I mean, well, at least... four out of four out of the five. So he was actually still he graduated two years after than me, even though he's maybe a year older. Uh-huh. But um, so he was the gaffer on Dance Party USA, my first right. film, not the DP, but ever since then he has shot. Yeah, I mean, all I, four. I, I spoke to him for Quiet City. Actually, I loved that movie. There was a great shot in that movie that I talked to him about that year. Uh, <clears throat> that's 2007. By the way, how does that feel? You've been making movies for more than a decade, Aaron. It's pretty strange <laughs> to ha- yeah have made five movies and to have been doing it for this long. Um, I, I I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 it, I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer for you. I'm going to come back to that with a different question. Okay. But let's start with Andrew. Uh, how's that evolution been working with him? I mean, I, th- I thought his work was a considerable step up on this movie. I mentioned the opening sequence and stuff, but... Uh, you know, just talk about the evolution of working with this guy. And, and, and is it important for you to maintain consistency with a DP? It is. I mean, in general, I like maintaining consistency and having creative relationships that extend over multiple movies. Um, and I think that it allows us to have this sort of common language with each other and shorthand and we know how each other work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we've evolved together over four movies. The first one of which you mentioned, Quiet City, um, you know, we made that movie for two thousand dollars with no resources (laughs) at all we shot that on the hvx 200 uh and i think there's things about that movie that look good i think the it's the appropriate aesthetic for that movie but it's very rough and tumble and 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 lo-fi and uh you know we we made the best of the resources we had and and but as we've gone on we've had we've figured out how to uh well a, have more resources because the budgets have gotten bigger, but B, mm-hmm. really utilize those resources and really figure out how to make the most of them. Um, so, yeah, we just on each film have tried to challenge ourselves. And if we ever feel like something is too easy, we know there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially in this case, when we were, you know, wanting to live in the tradition I've been talking about of those thrillers from the 80s and 90s, we really wanted to live up to how great we think some of those films are shot and mm-hmm. um, to find ways to be really expressive about Los Angeles, a city that's been shot, you know, more times maybe than any other city, uh, but to do it 
our way to show how we saw the city and to find visual ways that were striking and unique. Drill down on that. How do you see the city? Well, I guess it started maybe with an idea of a color palette, which is when driving around Los Angeles at night, there's this contrast between the sort of orangey glow of the streetlights and, and often there's clear clear skies and a kind of a white-blue glow from the moon. Mm-hmm. So that was our sort of starting aesthetic, and you see that a little bit, especially what well, we shot right around here uh, – so the characters go to an Italian restaurant right at the beginning of the movie, and there's a driving sequence after that, uh, which we actually shot uh, on the very last day. We were returning the equipment from – we had shot some palm trees <laughs> around my house, and we were returning the equipment, driving down Colorado, mm-hmm. and and um, shooting – uh, shooting, had the camera pointed out the window and shooting the parks and businesses mm-hmm. at night. And yeah, you get this collection of neon lights and street lights. And then the, uh, you know, when you hit a street that you're looking down, you, you know, there's this glow of the moon. And, yeah. and so that was kind of our starting place. And also it had to do with choosing the right locations mm-hmm. and really choosing locations that spans an experience that we wanted to. <clears throat> Uh, portray in Los Angeles. Like Los Angeles is a city that has a million different experiences, a million different neighborhoods. Uh, you know, I've lived here for five years. You've lived here, I think, for like 12 13. years, 13 years. Yeah. And I, I think I could live here for 50 more years and I would still find a pocket of Los Angeles that I knew nothing about, didn't even know existed. Yeah. And so we wanted to express some of the horizontal nature of Los Angeles and how driving is so important to the city and how a person can span all the way from, you know, Eagle Rock to the Hollywood Hills and Koreatown in between in the course of a night, which feels like a very Los Angeles experience as opposed to, for example, in New York, it's a much more vertical experience. Everyone's stacked on top of each other. Mm -hmm. Here, it's all stretched out. How did those visual ideas about the city, did they inform or were informed by at all theme in the film? Yeah, definitely. I mean, <clears throat> you know, we also chose to, to shoot in a uh, 239 aspect ratio mm-hmm. to, to kind of highlight the horizontal expansiveness of the city. And it's a city where um, I'm trying to think I don't want to reveal too much for those mo- people who haven't seen the movie yet. Um, but I will talk about the last shot, which uh, pans away from our main action and, and into a wide cityscape of the city. And um I think that's our way of expressing something that we feel about Los Angeles, which is that it's a city with a million stories and like everyone's intersecting uh, and that this is just one of them. In a way, it's like the the, you know, the naked, naked city, both Mm -hmm. TV show and movie, which has the voiceover that's like, there's a million stories in the naked city. (laughs) This is one of them. And uh, I I really I, I felt like that about this view of Los Angeles, that we're happening to interact with these characters for this limited period of time. We're going to get this view into their lives, but that this is just one very small piece of the fabric of the city. By the way, let's drop in like a synopsis here for anyone who has sure, no yeah, idea what we're, we're talking about. We're probably confusing people. <clears throat> What's your elevator pitch on Gemini? Now, elevator pitch is that it is a movie about a personal assistant to a celebrity and they're let me back up to say that this relationship is something that I encountered in Los mm. Angeles and became very interested in. It's the reason why I wrote the movie because this relationship uh, the lines between personal and professional are very blurry, and it's not clear like where the job begins and ends being a personal assistant. And I thought that was such an interesting starting place for a thriller, someone who's in some ways taken on the identity as an extension of the identity of the person that they're working for. So that's where we start out the film. And as the film goes on, uh, Heather, who, uh, played by Zoe Kravitz, who's the, the, the celebrity, uh, is uh, – uh, 
concerned that there's a lot of people who are angry at her and, and she borrows a gun from Jill, mm-hmm. played by Lola Kirk, her assistant. And uh, I, I'm maybe going to leave it at that, but let's just say the guns introduced in Act 1 tend to <laughs> go off later. <laughs> there you go. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, one of my friends was Mickey Rourke's personal assistant during Iron Man 2. That guy has stories. I'm sure he does, <laughs> yes. Uh it's something I think people – I feel like I saw this mentioned. I certainly thought about it. Was Is anything about Bergman or Persona in your mind here? It's funny. No, I, we didn't think about that, but it has come up yeah. since then. Um, no. I, I mean, if anything, <laughs> I was thinking more of like, you know, single white female or, or something oh, totally. like that, yeah. which, which has some, you know, uh, blurry identity <clears throat> situations. You don't really go there, though. Like, you, you kind of – you're expecting it to sort of go in like – not in like a sexy direction like that, but just a – an even more dangerous direction. Right, was that yeah. a, did you willfully stay away from that or was that? I wanted to, yeah, uh, certainly set the movie in those, in the tradition of those movies, but also have it feel like life. Like I really yeah. wanted it to feel like, what if something like this really happened to us? Like what would, you know, what would an, ordinary person deal with this and, yeah. and so in some ways i wanted it to feel heightened and in others i wanted it to feel believable and yeah. the sense the sense of like okay this is a person who's like alive this isn't like a this is you're seeing an aesthetic of movies but you're seeing behavior that feels like real life uh, yeah that gets back to what i was saying i think it has the dna of you and that's why it's such an interesting mixture <clears throat> you were talking about a specific shot there's another shot that i thought was kind of amazing whenever you can see a shot like this in a movie that you've never seen before in L.A., it's really fascinating, which is the motorcycle shot uh, winding around the Canyon. Canyon. Oh, yeah. And it's just this this perspective. I don't know where you went or how you even found this perspective. Maybe this has shown up in movies before and I've never noticed it, but it was just such an interesting way to get so much in the frame. So that brings me to just location scouting. Like, What was that vibe like for a movie like this where Los Angeles has been so picked over in terms of locations? Well, it started really with the script, and I wrote a lot of specific locations in the script, places that I've been, places that I've liked, a lot of places in my neighborhood. Uh, Now, some of those ended up in the movie. Others, for logistical reasons, uh, were not in the movie. Uh, And – but – we really tried to dig in deep and find places that had a history and felt like they were part of the DNA of Los Angeles. So I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Uh, Please to talk about something that's like very off to the side, but I'll, I'll relate it back to Gemini, but it might take me a minute. Uh, and that is that um, I was listening to a podcast uh, or a KCRW show called good food. Mm-hmm. And they had some people on recently who had done a rogue 99 essential restaurants. I don't know if you've heard about this where mm-hmm. like, so the LA weekly, traditionally does 99 central restaurants but they've moved in a oh wait you mean the, the are you talking about the top 100 thing that's jonathan gold oh, the okay, LA, okay okay la uh times oh you're He's, talking about a radio thing i'm sorry yeah go so, ahead so the la weekly used to in print do uh this is the most convoluted story uh <laughs> used to in print do this 99 essential restaurants that went in a direction that people were unhappy with so these two women decided critic former critics for the la weekly decided to um do their own, a Rogue 99, which they did on a site called LA Taco and then came on KCRW to talk about it. And what they were saying is that they chose restaurants not that were the 99 best restaurants, but 99 restaurants that captured the DNA, the diversity of Los Angeles and captured the fabric of the city. And so that really made me think about 
what we were trying to do in choosing locations, which was try and capture something about the fabric of the city. And, and people always talk about how, um, you know, Los Angeles is a city with no history. And, and that's what I thought growing up in Oregon, never having visited California as, as uh, you know, until I was 22. Uh, but Los Angeles is a city with a lot of history. It just all happens to be 20th century history. And so I wanted to root the movie and the locations in that. And uh, so when we're looking for places, we always, when we looked at so many places before finding, you know, the right kind of spot, like, and and sometimes it ended up shifting away from the original intent of the location, but it felt like it spoke to something of Los Angeles. And so we went with it. And an example of that is one scene where uh, uh, Reeve Carney is in in the movie. He plays the ex-boyfriend of of Zoe Kravitz's character. He was supposed to be in the lobby of the Roosevelt Hotel when we see him. So we, for logistical reasons, practical concerns, we couldn't shoot there. And uh, we started looking at other hotel lobbies. Nothing was feeling quite right. And then we started looking at bars and finally our location scout was like what about tonga hut which is a tiki bar in north hollywood a really old uh from the 1950s tiki bar and initially i was like i don't know that's like so different from a hotel but then as i started thinking about it i started thinking about all the history a place like that had how it actually like the idea that this guy who's but you don't know exactly what he is but seemingly some you know like an actor or something um Mm -hmm. he would hang out at a place like that's just the kind of place that he would hang out with and there's uh, hang out at and also lola kirk has this line where she says hey this is my place like you can't come like why are you here this is my place and i thought that was so perfect for a place like tonga hut and perhaps even more so than a place like the roosevelt hotel which obviously anyone could think of yeah totally that was a very long story that no it's perfect (laughs) that's what we want here um you you, like I said, you've been making movies for 10 years now. You won an Independent Spirit Award a few years ago for Land Ho, back to back with Chad. Yeah, back to back. And Brett Haley broke the streak, the bastard. He did break the streak. Why couldn't the, you win that award? We're talking North Carolina School of the yeah, Arts streak. Yeah, we are. Sorry. Uh, but, you know, I just wanted to talk to you about the state of independent cinema. I think you're qualified <laughs> to yeah, discuss that. So, so. so how does it feel out there? What, what, what does this environment and the Netflix of it all and – I know you have strong feelings about that. You go as deep on that as you want. But uh, what do you think about the state of independent cinema right now? Well, I think I need to be careful what I say here because I do have some strong opinions that may not be uh, uh, best for my health, my future health as a filmmaker. Um, well, I, okay. So first of all, I think it's worth breaking it down to me as a filmmaker and me as a person who likes watching movies, which I mm-hmm. think are connected but kind of different maybe i'll start with me as just a person who likes watching movies and to say that over the last 10 to you know whatever 10 to 15 years movies had gone from something where i like really uh held in high regard these physical objects you know at first tapes in the 90s and then dvds this i had this idea that i would like build a library and really mattered to me it felt really important to me and i feel like the interaction with those physical objects meant so much to me whether i owned them or whether i was renting them from a video store and over the course of that 10 to 15 years they went from that to basically in my mind as of like maybe seven years ago essentially worthless um and it made me really sad. And I realized that even though we have access to everything at all times now, that, that over the course of the next few years, I came back to the feeling that like physical objects are important and going to physical places to get those objects is important. And that I, 
you know, hadn't gone to a video store for a very long time before I started going to video tech in South Pasadena about two years ago and realizing that browsing on streaming platforms makes me very depressed and makes me not want to watch movies because I just I, I feel like I'm stuck in an endless loop of nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas browsing at a video store, you're looking at a shelf that you, you know, you came to check out whatever shelf you came to check out, but then you know, oh, look at this. It's like Cuban cinema from the sixties right next to here. Like, that's really interesting. Like, I wonder what this is. And you start mm-hmm. pulling stuff out and maybe the person next to you says, Oh, I've seen that film. That's a great film. You should check that out. And that just doesn't happen on online. And I feel like there's a, cultural robustness that is really missing from the streaming experience and 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 not only that but the the idea that that things come out and we all have a chance to talk about them to gather and and see them in a place a physical place with your friends you know so as an audience member i feel a lot of concern about where that's heading and and mm-hmm. for me i enjoy watching movies with people in movie theaters i enjoy checking videos out from a from a video store and I don't so much enjoy watching things streaming, even though there's obviously a lot of great content there. Even the fact that I'm calling it content, you'd never go into a video (laughs) store and say, what content do you have for me today? Um, What's the new content this week? I mean, I feel like it's, it's a small thing, but uh, I feel like that word kind of speaks to the, the, how everything is like a tech company that offers a service, not a, not the service itself. And everyone is just sort of like a middleman, like, mm-hmm. like we're just providing the platform and Hey, whatever's on here, you know, it's like, like that's less important. Right. Um, now the filmmaker, uh, you know, I think I've been quite lucky. Like for example, with Gemini, we got to make the movie we want to make. People believed in us to make it. They didn't interfere. Um, um, I should uh, mention, by the way, one of your producers is Adela Romanski, who just won the Oscar for Moonlight a year and a half ago. Yeah. So I just wanted to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, that probably that probably helps in people not wanting to interfere. But I, I I do feel like by having made really small movies completely to you know with my own devices and built kind of slowly, that I have proved that if we are allowed to make the movie we want to make, that 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 people know what they're going to get. And that's a movie that, you know, they can see like what that looks like. And so we have, as the budgets have grown over time, uh, had that opportunity again. Now, in terms of, uh, people connecting with it, I I mean, so neon is our distributor and I could not possibly be more happy with working with them. It's been the best process I've ever had with any distributor. And I'm so proud of our materials, our trailer poster and so on. Awesome. Yeah. It's really, it's a great poster, and, and Tom Tom Quinn, who's who runs the place, uh, said something that I thought was really important, which is we shouldn't stop working on this poster till till we all want it hanging on our wall. <laughs> and I feel like that's a really incredible attitude to have. You'd think that's so obvious, but that's not an attitude that you always get. It's also not an attitude that means how can we best sell right this movie. It's an attitude that says how can we best produce something that represents this movie that we're proud of. And I think their belief is that representing the movie. <clears throat> that we're all really proud of does help sell the movie. It yeah. helps communicate what kind of movie this is right, and right. bring in the kind of people who want to see that movie. Now, having said that, you know, you look around at, at box office in general and a lot of movies that have great materials that are maybe great movies have a difficult time connecting. And especially, uh, I, I mean, I'm going to make myself sound old. I'm only 36, but I, it feels like younger people that are a little bit younger than us, 
and, and especially people who are like teenagers or in their early twenties going to the movies in the same way that we went to the movies. Um, it's a big, bigger step for them or not. Everyone is interested in that. It feels like it's very challenging to communicate with that group of people who may well enjoy the experience. Were they to feel like, were they to take that step? So I mm -hmm. think one of the biggest missing pieces right now is how, how to let people know who are, let's say under 25 that like going to the movies is fun. And like mm -hmm. that, uh, I don't know. I'm making myself going sound to horribly the movies, dated uh, well, here. No, no, no. You're right. I mean, the theatrical business is obviously getting more and more, uh, moving more and more toward, the big event thing, right? Yeah. Like the, the the Avengers, the the Marvel of it all, the Star Wars of it all. You go to the movie theater to see those movies, not necessarily a, a Gemini or something. So, like that kind of is what you're talking about, yeah. And Re I'm, rewiring that. I just, for me, I I I think there should and could be a very broad spectrum of what's on offer at the theater. Yeah, and. There is, but it's so heavily weighted towards the franchise part of it. And, you know, you, you think of Disney, who's by far the most successful studio in this age, and what they're marketing isn't really even movies. It's brands. Yeah, totally. And some of those brands happen to uh, involve some really great movies, uh, and there's some really great directors working within those. And I just wish that that was a part of the industry that was robust and healthy, that there was then another part of the industry that was robust and healthy that was non-branded, exciting, you know, just um, great movies. I actually mm -hmm. haven't seen it yet, but um, A Quiet Place, mm -hmm. is that the right mm -hmm. title? Um, you know, I think that's a really interesting example where it has a reputation for quality. It's not part of any brand. Uh, and it did, you know, that connected Made $50 million. Dollars Made $50 million. Dollars. Yeah. And so I think that... $17 million budget. And exactly. Now like, it'll be a franchise. Now, of course, <laughs> that, that's the thing is that everyone wants to turn that into a franchise, which is fine, I guess. But, like, I feel like there's lots of examples where if you bring quality movie to theaters, you communicate with people the right message that, like, you're going to love this movie. Right. Uh, that can work. And, and, you know, I think that uh, Denis Villeneuve's movies, uh, Arrival and Sicario, are, are two other examples of that. Nightcrawler's yeah. another example yeah. of that. And um, we could keep naming movies, but those are, you know, we're kind of naming the exceptions here. Uh, it's and the mid-budget dramas that no one wants to make anymore because it's either a million-dollar budget or a hundred-million-dollar budget, and anything in between is a risk. It, Yeah, it is. I mean, and that's... You know, people have lost their shirt on yeah. on those that scale of movies. So, in some ways, I understand, but I also feel like it's this like horrible, like self fulfilling cycle where sure. you don't, or a lot of studios don't want to back movies that don't have a brand uh, that are those mid level movies, and so those become more and more scarce, and there becomes less of an ecosystem for those movies to succeed. And you know, I'm looking again at your VHS shelf, and I'm looking at so many movies. That, you know, like Basic Instinct was an original concept that I believe at the time the script sold for like more. What's it the, was millions. I think yeah, it was like three million or something. So like that just wouldn't happen today. And I, I like wonder if – I mean I don't think Basic Instinct would exist today. But that's a great film. It's it's um, it's part of the filmography of a great director. And mm -hmm. I, I like think of all the movies that were not – seeing you know all the people who don't have an opportunity to make stuff that allows them to express something beyond like still within the studio system but 
beyond the scope of a world like Marvel or Star Wars that has these like really finite parameters. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of, I, I feel maybe going back to an audience member, I feel a little like robbed of like getting to see what that is and, and looking at, you know, op- opening up the, oh, this is again, speaking to maybe what happened in the nineties, like cracking open the, the newspaper or like the entertainment weekly, like what's coming this season and right. being like, Ooh, that sounds neat. Like never heard of that before. Right. Um, that's a real rarity. And then as a filmmaker, like, those are the honestly the kind of movies that I want to make. I am most interested in making stu- studio, elegant genre movies that just don't. We were born ten years too late. I know. Pro. I know. I mean. I mean. I'm thinking like to me one of the you know one of the things that I look to that's like this is what I aspire to is like talented Mr. Ripley, which works oh as God, a genre yeah. film. It's amazing, perfectly, and also has incredible performances in it. Is directed with such like gentleness and attention to detail, and I think that has the single greatest shot in all of cinema. The piano reflection shot. The piano reflection shot, It's yeah. amazing to me. It's just thematically potent. I love it. Anyway, I've written about it at length before. Oh, really? I think yeah. people have probably seen that. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, it's hard to... Yeah. It's hard to pick... I mean, maybe that finds a place, but, like, for every five of those there used to be, now there's, you know, one, if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another film which I wonder if it would even get made today, Alien, which I think is perhaps the greatest pop movie ever yeah. made... Uh, you know, it's, it's an original concept that's very elevated, very restrained in many ways and very pure. And, um, I hope that there's still space for movies like that. Well, what's interesting is, I don't know if you, you should pick up this book that just came out, Ben Fritz, uh, the big picture. It's great distillation of where we're at in the business right now. And he makes this other point that I'm going to make. It's just that when you see... People like Amy Pascal, who was the head of Sony Pictures, or the uh, or or Jeff Robinoff, who was over at Warner Brothers, who loved these kind of movies we're talking about and championed these kind of movies, and then kind of the fiscal reality caught up with them and they were moved on out. But then they become producers. Amy Pascal's a producer; she produced The Post last year. Uh, Robinoff's a producer now too, and and you know they're trying in their way now to make these movies that they were passionate about once upon a time. And we'll see how that kind of, I guess, era in a way happens. These these formal moguls who are now producers with deals at studios and stuff trying to get things made. I mean, we'll see if that kind of thing helps. But yeah, there's just this big, big this mid-budget thing that we just don't get anymore. I mean, a movie we both like, which is over here on the shelf, Speed. I don't think Speed would be made today. I mean, No, I don't think so. Certainly not the way it was made, uh, you know, practically and... I mean, I think this is part of uh, why people reflect on how there's not movie stars the way there used to be movie stars. And I think part of this is that there's not the right kind of movie to mint movie stars. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, Keanu Reeves had already, you know, been, uh, you know, we'd seen him in Point Break, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I feel like Speed kind of accelerated him to like the next level of movie star and and introduced us to Sandra Bullock. Mm -hmm. I'm right about that, right? More or less. More yeah. or less, yeah. right. Yeah. But, like, it made her a movie star. Yeah. And I would like, say Demolition Man was the year before. And oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> also on the shelf. <laughs> also on the shelf. Yeah, totally. Um, and I can see it's the year before because you have them chronologically arranged here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we don't have this – you know, we don't have uh, – I mean, I feel like we just sound like two, two, two – We sound like old Guys farts. beyond our years bemoaning the state of things. Um but, like, you know, you're thinking of, like, 
you know, think of films like Clueless, which yeah. made uh, Elisa Silverstone a star, yeah. or All the Right Moves, uh, which made Tom Cruise a star, or it was Risky Business first. Um, was Risky Business first? Maybe Risky Business. The, the point stands, though, that the like these stands. kind of movies, and those are even less in, in evidence now, these kind of like, like sincere kind of pop dramas Mm -hmm. i mean really just almost doesn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. and it's just it feels like there's not the machine to make new movie stars to then elevate them with like something like speed and then you know there's a lot of great actors right now but it's you know you're i think we're very hard pressed to find people that are you know like denzel or like tom cruise that are just like these like charismatic guys elevated by a movie that comes out of nowhere by the way they wanted uh <clears throat> they were really mad at keanu for shaving his hair oh for really? speed yeah they thought it was going to dial down his charisma his movie star charisma mm. obviously it worked out it did work out <laughs> but it, uh, it looks great in that movie <laughs> <laughs> we could probably talk forever we're going a little long but uh yeah, this entire subject we're on now could could be an entire podcast. I feel like podcast. we could easily spend three hours talking about this. Not that anyone wants yeah. to listen to that. We but. should get you in here and then get like Kevin Feige next to you and just have a chat. <laughs> Maybe get Ted Sarandos over here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just I, – I, yeah, again, not to dwell on it too much, but I just – you know, we love – we both love movies. Yeah. We want the industry to be healthy. Like I think there's a place for big budget stuff. There's a place for franchises. There's like – I hope the studios – continue on and and i hope we don't see studios going out of business yeah um but i fear that we're in a uh you know what i said about the the home media platforms why so I, yeah. I, I fear that we're in an era of brands and platforms and not of the movies themselves and i just hope that the end of that story isn't that um isn't something dystopian yeah i don't think either one of us wants those things to go away either like i love the marvel movies i go to the marvel movies i just wish we lived in an era still where those were actually Tent poles, yeah. Which meaning they prop up all the other right. projects, yes. yeah, projects that's a, that are. It's interesting, to sort of dig into what that term actually means. Yeah. that it props up all the rest of the slate, and we don't have that anymore. No, so. we don't. Anyway, the movie's called Gemini. You should all go see it. Uh, it should be in theaters near you somewhere. So please near you. It. So thanks for coming on the show, Aaron. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 